Well, I hope you all had a uh, good Thanksgiving. You're well fed, if not well rested. And uh, it's good to see a number of our members who have been on the road and traveling. And uh, we prayed for you, and it's good to see you back in one piece, safe and sound, by the Lord's grace, to minister to us. And so we're thankful as we enter this holiday season just to be together and to really celebrate the Lord's goodness in our lives. And that's really our focus this morning. Well, it's really a Thanksgiving Sunday in some ways, and we want the opportunity just to allow the Lord to stir our hearts and to show us the good things that he has done in our lives and that we have every reason as a people of God to be thankful. Um, these past few weeks, if you haven't been with us, we've been learning from Jesus how to pray. That's where we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount. And few people have excelled more at this task of learning from Jesus how to pray than our 17th and 18th century evangelical forefathers known as the Puritans. And though the Puritans are now largely ridiculed and scorned today, especially by their descendants on the East Coast, as Americans we're really indebted to them. And I know that's politically incorrect. But as believers, we will always struggle with this tension. And one of the tensions that we will struggle with is how do we enjoy the Lord? How do we walk as his children in a world that really hates the Lord? and really rejects all the good gifts that God has given. There's always going to be that tension as we walk through. And certainly, the Puritans very much so walked that path from the very beginning. The reason they came to America was because of religious persecution. And it's not that those who came to America first didn't have all sorts of different motives. They were financial motives involved. But the people who were willing to come and start a colony here very much came because of their love of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and their desire to live his word. It was very much the heart of many of the Puritans at their best. It was their sincere desire to live for the Lord according to his word because he had saved them. And it's for that reason they were willing to give their lives to come to America to follow the Lord and to bring his gospel and his good news. And one of the reasons the gospel came to America was through the Puritans, as well as what they brought was this tradition known as a Feast of Thanksgiving. Now, we're a long way from that history and from that tradition. But as we think about the Puritans, there's much to learn because it was from a warm love of Christ and a deep reverence for his word that the Puritans became champions of what author Rob Elmer refers to as the great open secret of prayer. And the great open secret of prayer was the spirit-filled practice of regularly meditating on God's word and then praying God's words back to him. 
simply put, they were learning from Christ and learning from the word of God, not from a tradition or not from a church. They were learning directly from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, how to pray to God as their heavenly father. They were going straight to the source. And this was no innovation because we see as we walk through the pages of scripture, this same discipline of grace in the lives of God's children throughout history and throughout the pages of scripture. This discipline of grace of feeding and praying through God's word each day. And church family, for us as we celebrate Thanksgiving and for our members, I really want to encourage you to set aside a portion of your time each day to spend with Christ. Not only listening to him on a regular basis, consecutively through his word, but learning from him to pray through those scriptures. Because, in fact, as we come to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his prayers in the New Testament, we see many times this is what our Lord and Savior is doing, filled with the Spirit. He is praying to his Father, but many of those prayers are very much anchored in the word of the Lord. And as we do so, what we see as children is he's instructing us and teaching us what to do with all the good things that the Lord has given us. And to some degree, that's what Thanksgiving should be about. What do we do with all the good things that the Lord has given us? If we are indeed blessed, if we indeed have things to give thanks to the Lord for, what are we going to do with it? How do we learn from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to walk in his grace on a regular basis? And as we come to God's word, we see that the Lord has left us with an entire book. He's given us an entire book to teach us how to be thankful to the Lord, to teach us how to walk in his love and his grace. And that book is called the Psalms, or it's also known as the Psalter. And this book of Psalms, not surprisingly, as you walk through what are God-breathed prayers and praises to the Lord, much of it is devoted to giving thanks to the Lord. If ever there was a book that could teach us from the Lord how to give thanks to him, it is the book of the Psalms. And this morning, that's where we're going to go to learn from the Lord how to give thanks to him. And as we walk through the thanksgiving that we find in the Psalms, it is a little bit different than our tradition today of thanksgiving. The thanksgiving that is being talked about in the Psalms and that is being taught in the Psalms is a thanksgiving that's given to the children of God. And it's a thanksgiving that belongs to the Lord. And what sets this thanksgiving apart is it's a thanksgiving that comes from being saved by God. And that's our big truth this morning. The reason we call it the Lord's Thanksgiving is because it's a thanksgiving that belongs entirely to the Lord. And it's a thanksgiving that has come and belongs entirely to the Lord because the Lord has saved the people who are giving him this thanks. And that's really our big truth, that the thanksgiving of the Lord is a thanksgiving that comes from his salvation, his work of grace, his work of amazing grace in our lives. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to Psalm 116. And this is where we'll be spending the bulk of our time this morning. 
And Psalm 116, verse 1, the psalmist begins. He says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my ears, my, excuse me, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people in the courts of the house of the Lord in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Old Testament scholar Gordon Wenham reminds us that most, if not all, of the Psalms were originally composed to be sung in the temple worship. But he also points out they served in a very practical way as a resource for private meditation and devotion. They served as a way of instructing people and members of the household of God as they sang these in the temple, privately they served as they sang them and memorized them to teach them and instruct them and to guide them in their fellowship with the God who had saved them. And over time, the Psalms were organized and they were arranged into five sections or five books and possibly to serve as the prayer and praise companion to the five books of Moses, also known as the Torah. And from beginning to end, the Psalms lay out for us really a journey of faith, a journey of faith that is lived out in a very dark and fallen world. What does it look like? And what does a heart look like as it travels through this fallen and broken world, as it struggles to trust in a God who is so contrary to the world in which we live. Well, if we want to know, you just have to walk through the Psalms. And you see in the very beginning, Psalm 1, which is the gateway and entrance, is really that challenge. There's two roads before you. The road of faith in the God who has created you and saved you for himself, or the road of the scornful and the scoffers who say, I'm going to do it my own way. And we see as you walk through that first book, very much the first book focuses, many of them King David's Psalms, on the affliction 
and the challenges and the trials that come to God's children and especially the king of God's choosing. Those who have said, well, I'm going to walk according to the law of the Lord. I'm going to walk with him. My life is going to be committed to him. And as you watch through that first book, you see, well, it isn't an easy walk. Even in the house of Israel, there is intense persecution and there is much affliction and there are many challenges and trials that come the way of those who love the Lord. But we see as you continue to walk through that the Lord delivers his children out of them, that he guides them through dark valleys that are necessary in their lives to see and appreciate how much the Lord loves them and who their God is. And then as you come to the final book of the Psalms, you see that much of it is devoted to the praise of the Lord. It's coming out on the other side, the deliverance for the faithful that comes and what they see if they are willing to wait for the Lord, even during those times that are hard and difficult. And of course, many of those Psalms came about during the exile while the Israelites were in Babylon. And those Psalms were given to give them hope, to show them, look, this is the end of the story. Don't give up. If you're afflicted now and things are hard because of your love for the Lord, if you wait in due time, you will see that the Lord is not finished with you yet. And of course, we see at the very end of the Psalter or the Psalms, the very last Psalm, the final words of the Psalms are, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And quite literally, as we talked about before, that word praise the Lord is literally in Hebrew, hallelujah. Okay? And this is how the Psalter closes. And what helps us as we go through the Psalms is we are able to walk through as children of faith to walk through the journey of faith and to see God's blueprint for faith for his children and how he works and how he loves. And how he works and loves is actually very different from the way the world functions and quite sadly, many of the ways that are projected in church as well. And as we come to Psalm 116, Psalm 116 is in this final section of the Psalter in the fifth book. It's the home stretch of the pilgrim's journey. And some of it is about looking back and seeing where the Lord has brought us. And it's part of a group of Psalms, Psalm 113 through 118, that became known as the Egyptian Hallel or praise. And it was typically sung on Passover evening. And this is very likely one of the psalms that Jesus sang together with his disciples at the Last Supper. And there's a good reason for this. It's because Psalm 116 is very clearly a God-breathed song of thanksgiving and praise to the Lord for his salvation. And it's sweet to be reminded that this is what Jesus brought his disciples through and shepherded their hearts the night before he was going to be crucified. And as we think about that, Psalm 116 bears witness to a very special thanksgiving and one that is something far more important than food and family and friends. What could be more important than food, family, and friends? And food, family, and friends, they're important. 
right? But what could be more important? Well, according to Psalm 116, for the child of God, there is something more important than food, family, and friends. And it's the presence of the Lord in our lives. It's his work and his ongoing work in our lives during not only the good times, but the hard times as well. That's what the psalmist is pointing to. And those are hard, brothers and sisters, when you're in the middle of the fire. It is really hard when you're being pressed. It's really hard when you're being afflicted to say, okay, okay, Lord, what are you doing? And it's very difficult to be thankful during those times. But that's why the Lord has given us a psalm from someone who's come through and is looking back and he's sharing with the people of God, let me help you and let me show you why you have reason for hope and reason to be thankful, especially during difficult times, because this is the way the Lord loves his children. It's giving thanks for the Lord's presence, but very specifically, his unfailing salvation in the lives of his children. And this, brothers and sisters, is what the Lord's thanksgiving is all about. And it's a thanksgiving that begins with God's love. And that brings us to our first point for this morning. The Lord's thanksgiving begins with his love. The Lord's thanksgiving begins with his love. Psalm 116 begins with this very strong declaration, public declaration. I love the Lord. It's the psalmist's declaration. And as you walk through this psalm, and this psalm is like a mini journey of this psalmist's life, who may well have been a priest in the temple at some point in time. But it begins with this statement, I love the Lord, and it ends with the statement, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And we see as we walk through and as he shepherds us, where thanksgiving and praise to the Lord begins. It begins in our hearts. It always begins there. Thanksgiving always begins in our hearts and it begins with what we love. And if we love food, family, and friends, we will give thanks and praise for food, family, and friends. If we love our jobs and our homes, we'll give thanks and praise for our jobs and homes. And without doubt, brothers and sisters, we should give thanks for these things. These are gifts and blessings from the Lord. But if this is all we're giving thanks for, brothers and sisters, we're missing out on the thanksgiving of the Lord because the Lord has a gift to give that is far greater than our food, family, and friends. And the psalmist, as he begins and says, I love the Lord, he proceeds in these first few, verse, few verses to explain why he loves the Lord. And it's God's work of salvation in his life during a very desperate and difficult time. He points out the overflow of his heart in those first few verses. What brings him to this place of shouting out that he loves the Lord. He says, because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Now, at first glance, that seems okay. He's thankful to the Lord because he gets what he wants, right? He asked the Lord for something. He prayed to the Lord for something, and the Lord heard him. But there's a lot more in those words. Gordon Wenham notes that in some ways, 
singing a psalm or a hymn is like taking an oath. We are committing ourselves in a binding way. When he comes out first and he says, I love the Lord, he is making a public statement. I am committed to the love of the Lord. And here's the reason why. And as he walks through those phrases, the phrases you'll see in this psalm all go back to Scripture with great theological implication. The idea of hearing someone's voice, which goes through Scripture, typically points to the way our God loves. Love in Scripture is often referred to as remembering and hearing. It's pointing out to the nuances of God's watchful care over the simple, of looking at those who are weak and looking at those who are struggling and demonstrating care. The idea of inclining your ear is the idea of a king who has more important things to do but is willing to stop for his child when his child asks for help and puts on hold the important things. And instead, this figure, this metaphor of illustration of inclining the ear, and you know that figure of speech where you talk about someone who has someone's ear. It's the idea that they have a place in their heart of importance where that person is willing to put those things on hold in order to consider the concerns that are being brought before them because this is a child or a person who is important to them, who is cherished, who they love. And the idea that he heard my voice is the idea, as you go on in the psalm, the psalmist is pointing out, he's listening and he can tell from my voice that there's trouble. It's the idea of understanding, hopefully, as a father or a husband, when you hear your child speak to you and you understand Something bad is going on. I need to probe deeper. I need to listen carefully. I need to put things on hold. It's an expression of love, brothers and sisters, as he's talking about this. It's not just about answer prayer. It's about the Lord being actively present and carefully considering everything that is going on, but also the burden that it places. Yes, the Lord already knows the afflictions that we go through. But the sensitivity and awareness to hear our struggles with those challenges. And husbands and dads, it's worth asking, do we listen to our spouses, our wives and children in this way? The Lord's concern is for the well-being of his sheep. And his concern is what his sheep are going through during times of affliction. And it's because the psalmist knows that the Lord is listening. He says, verse 2, Therefore I will call on him as long as I live. And in verse 3 and 4, he walks through the reason for his calling out to the Lord in such desperation. He's going through a near-death experience. As we walk through the Psalms and we walk through the Old Testament, this may well have been physical ailment or disease, but it could also have been political as well, where his life was on the line and was threatened because of his faithfulness to the Lord. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress 
and anguish. One of the beautiful things about the Psalms is the emotion that is expressed. And the psalmist here is very candid. He's not putting on a stiff upper lip. He's not pretending, hey, everything's good. I'm a godly person. I'm a priest in the household of God. I have it all together. And I have to present this image that I have it all together. What will people think if they see a Christian in tears or struggling? And yet here he points out, look, the life of faith is one that brings with it very real anguish and distress. There is discomfort in walking with the Lord. There are moments where you come from a world's perspective where you feel that death is breathing down your back and that you've got one foot, as they would say in our time, one foot in the grave. And the temptation during those times, brothers and sisters, is to say, where's our God? Isn't he listening? Where is he? But he goes on and says during this moment and during this time of struggle, verse 4, then I called on the name of the Lord. And that statement, I called on the name of the Lord, is really a statement. He's not just praying. The idea of calling on the name of the Lord is to commit yourself to the Lord. He's saying here, things were so bad in my life. I just... Surrender to the Lord. I look to him and say, okay, my life is in your hands. And that's where this prayer comes from. Oh, Lord, I pray deliver my soul. And that statement, oh, Lord, oh, it's literally, please, Lord. Please, Lord, I pray deliver my soul. Brothers and sisters, where does love begin? Here, the psalmist is pointing out in a very subtle way the reason he loves the Lord is because the Lord loved him first. Before he entered into a time of trouble, he had a Lord and a Father who was listening and actively involved. And as he rolls out, he's going to show he had a Lord who cared, he had a Father who was watching out for him and understood and listened and entered into his plight and his dilemma. He had a God who knew and shared what a father's love should be. He had a God who was gracious. And this brings us to our second point for this morning. The Lord's thanksgiving remembers his graciousness. The Lord's thanksgiving remembers his graciousness. In the middle portion of the psalm, it's devoted to how the Lord cared for him during his time of affliction. But the place that he begins is remembering who the Lord is. And we see, brothers and sisters, what gives us a heart of thanksgiving True thanksgiving is remembering what was given. Another word for thanksgiving or thankfulness is gratitude. And gratitude is defined as an appreciation for the kindness, the care, and the help of others. It's an appreciation of grace, an appreciation of undeserved favor or kindness or generosity. 
Now, it's one thing to appreciate the kindness and generosity we receive from others. But it's a very different thing to appreciate the person who gives us that kindness and that grace and that mercy. And according to Psalm 116, this is what sets apart the Lord's thanksgiving. And this is what sets apart his work of love in the lives of his saints. Is his work of love in the lives of his saints enables them to appreciate not just the gift, but the God who gives it. Why does the Lord ordain times of affliction and trouble in our lives? If he loves us as a good father, why does he allow those moments? And as the psalmist walks us through, he shows us, and he's looking back, at the time it's difficult, at the time we're barely scraping by, we're just trying to get through. But as he looks back, he begins to see, this is what has allowed me to appreciate how much the Lord loves me and the work that he needs to do in my life. And this is like Psalm 119 that we read this morning. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. When you afflicted me, Lord, I learned your word that when everything's going well, there's no need for grace, is there? There's no need to remember God when the bonus is coming in at the end of the year, everything's going well, and Thanksgiving typically as we get together is to give thanks that my life is not as bad as other people. I've got a great job, a great wife, a great home. Now listen, we should be thankful for all of those things. Yes, we do. But real gratitude, brothers and sisters, comes from a place where we realize how desperately we need God's grace. And that's what the psalmist is pointing out here. He says, I I was brought to this place where I saw I couldn't save myself. I was desperate. My job, my career, my friends, my family, they couldn't save me. I needed a salvation greater than that. I needed a love greater than that. And there was only one person who could do it. The Lord. And not only was he able, he was willing. And so that's why he begins this portion in verse 5. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. And it's through this trial that he's begun to appreciate. You cannot separate the grace of God as unmerited favor from his righteousness. This is what brings true mercy, compassion, unmerited favor, kindness, a willing to help someone who is desperately in need. In Psalm 116, it says, God ordained journey of suffering and salvation that brings the psalmist to the place where he can see the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, can you see the grace of God? Have you seen the grace of God? Have you seen that the God who is testified to and revealed himself in this word the God who sent his son to die on the cross for you and rose from the grave, the God who you sing to, have you seen personally, firsthand experience that he is indeed a gracious God and he is righteous and he is merciful. To some degree, you never want to go through a hard time with your family. I think as dads, 
we labor and struggle to do everything we can to protect our families from suffering. And perhaps one of the worst things that you can go through is to have a family member who's sick or ill because what's excruciating during those times and maybe even more excruciating for me as a physician, right? You spend your whole time trying to control outcomes. And then when you have a family member who's there and you're waiting for another physician and you're waiting in the emergency room and you're calling up and you're waiting for these things, there's nothing you can do. You're helpless. It's a feeling of absolute lack of power and helplessness that everything in this life, in this world, is devoted to run from. What do I do in my career? What do I do in my ministry? What do I do in order to help people and take care of people I love and to protect them? And yet the psalmist shows, as the Lord walks us through, there are these dark valleys that he brings us through where necessarily we begin to see, I'm unable to save my family. I am unable to deliver my children. I am unable to protect those I love from the curse of sin and death in this world. But as the psalmist points out, there is one person who is able to step in. And there is one person who is able to rescue and he points this out, verse 6, the Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, that's the idea of I was absolutely unable to save myself. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. What is it that helps a saint? have a heart overflowing with love and thanksgiving for the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we can learn from this, and the Puritans did. It comes from stopping and pausing and remembering the Lord's presence in our lives at our lowest points and the way in which he has heard and answered our prayers and the way in which he has delivered and saved us. In verse 8, he says, For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. And he shows the entire way in which the Lord has saved him. And as we come to God's word, we see God's salvation is not, as we've said many times, just simply a ticket to heaven. God's salvation is for the whole person. And sometimes we miss out on this. What the psalmist is pointing out is he did not learn that the Lord was loving, gracious, good, and powerful and able to save from a seminary class or from a sermon. He's pointing out here, I learned it firsthand. And as he walks through this threefold description of his salvation, he shows he saved my soul from death, my eyes from tears. He's talking about the deliverance of the sorrow from suffering my feet from stumbling. As you walk through scripture, that idea of stumbling is being defeated, being discouraged. It's going on that pilgrim's progress, and perhaps it's temptation. Perhaps it's the instamment of sin. Sometimes when we're struggling and we're afflicted, those are the moments we are most prone to doubt the goodness of God, and we are most tempted to compromise, and we are most tempted to be discouraged and defeated. 
And the psalmist is pointing out he needed salvation from all of this. When folks say, hey, I don't need pie in the sky, fair enough. When we're suffering, we need deliverance from the sorrow of sin and living in a sinful world. We need deliverance from sadness and heartbreak. We need deliverance from the physical things that afflict us, and we need deliverance especially from everything in this world that conspires to separate us from God and make us forget his goodness and his presence in our lives. And the psalmist points out this is exactly what the Lord did. In verse 10 and 11, he said, I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What's he saying here? He's pointing out that in his lowest point, the one thing that carried him when he was afflicted was faith in God's salvation and faith in who God is. And when he points out and he says, I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars, he's pointing out it's in hard times where we really see what people are made of. And it's in hard times and times of duress that we begin to see that no man ultimately is reliable. No man ultimately is completely faithful. No man is able to deliver what's needed, especially in times of pain and duress. There is only one person who is worthy of our trust. And he's looking back and saying, there is only one who is worthy of our love, our adoration and trust. And that is the Lord who is gracious and who is righteous and who is merciful. And it's for that very reason, in verse 9, he proclaims, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. That's essentially a promise that has come from the salvation that he's received. The idea of walking before the Lord in the land of the living is a promise that he will never forget what the Lord has done for him and he's never going to wander. He's never going to stray. He's devoted the rest of his life to cling by faith to the Lord. Why? Because only the Lord, he has discovered and learned through affliction and duress, only the Lord is worthy of his trust. It makes us stop, I hope, brothers and sisters, to consider who is worthy of our trust. What are we thankful for? Because what we're thankful for points to what we're trusting in. And what separates the Lord's thanksgiving from all the thanksgivings in this world is the thanksgiving of the Lord never forgets the graciousness and the goodness of the Lord. It never forgets his salvation. And this brings us to our final point this morning. The Lord's thanksgiving leads to his worship and praise. The Lord's thanksgiving leads to his worship and praise. This is where the psalmist's journey leads. It doesn't just lead to being thankful for his salvation. As we come to the end of the psalm, or the final section of the psalm, verse 12, the psalmist asks this question. It says, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? 
all his benefits, talking about the Lord delivering him from sorrow, delivering him from stumbling, perhaps in sin, for delivering him from death. Comprehensive experience. He's basically saying, how can I pay the Lord back for so great a salvation? And it's a rhetorical question because the answer is he can't. And it's with this question the psalmist shows where a true appreciation and remembrance of God's saving grace leads. It leads to a place of humility and inadequacy before God. Is someone really thankful for their salvation? Is someone really thankful to the Lord for saving them? That person is going to be a humble person. That person is going to be a thankful person. And the flip side is we shepherd folks who struggle with discontent. We exhort them and encourage them. Stop and meditate for a minute and think about God's goodness in your life. We kind of have this propensity, and I've had it many times too, right? When we're struggling with things, you know, or your kids come, right? And they're complaining about their food. What do we say? Well, there's people in Africa. What do they have to eat? You know, they don't cut off the crusts on their bread. They don't scrape off the peanut butter off their sandwich, right? And we all do that. Our tendency in our flesh is we want to look at someone who's got it worse than us so we can feel better about ourselves. Brothers and sisters, that's fleshly. It's from the devil and it's from the pit. Now look, public enemy number one. I've said that many times to my kid. Lord, forgive me, okay? I'm not better. But as you walk through, you see that the remedy for a discontent heart is not thinking and comparing yourself to someone else and making yourself feel better that I'm so much better off than this poor Joe over here. It's actually the opposite. It's a place of humility that realizes I don't deserve what I have. Everything I have is a gift of God's grace. God has dealt with me graciously and better than I deserve. And as the psalmist does, it's to look back and remember and not forget all the different ways God has been good in our lives, the ways he's prevented me from sinning, the way he has pulled me back from all the terrible things that I could be, the way that he has intervened or brought me through times of suffering and has allowed me to suffer, but has brought me through so that I could have a greater compassion and a greater appreciation of his mercy and compassion. All of those things to really look at the Lord's work in my heart and my life, especially during the hard times. It's that place of humility, brothers and sisters that begins to open our eyes to the goodness and grace of the Lord. And that's exactly where the psalmist stands at the end of remembering God's salvation in his life. God, I've got nothing to offer you, so what do I do? And as he walks through what he's going to do, is he surrenders the entirety of his life to the Lord according to what God's prescribed in the Old Covenant. All of those statements that follow are references to commands that come 
in the Old Testament, in, in the covenant. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and I'll call on the name of the Lord. The cup of salvation is likely a reference to Exodus and Numbers, where the Lord commands his children to offer a drink offering alongside the sacrifice of an unblemished lamb. It was part of the atonement that the priests had to make a sacrifice, a sacrifice of atonement, an unblemished lamb. And alongside that was an offering or a cup of wine that was poured out on the altar. And together, this sacrifice that is given, this cup of salvation, needed to be given to the Lord before they could serve in the household of the Lord. It was a testimony and a statement, I can't have fellowship with the Lord, I can't serve him until he saves me and sanctifies me and my life is entirely given up for the Lord. And when the psalmist then says, I will call on the name of the Lord, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. The idea here, as you go back to the Old Testament, is those paying the vows is, I'm publicly saying before everyone, my life is entirely bound to the Lord. From here on, my life belongs to the Lord. And the framework in the Old Covenant that comes as God has shown, I have saved you, I have loved you, I have provided a way of forgiveness. If we want to move forward in this relationship, you can't pay me back. You don't have it in you. But what I do require is on my terms according to my word, if you love me, if you're thankful to me for my grace, you will devote your life to my love and my grace and you will be faithful to me you'll surrender your life and this is what the psalmist plea is in verse 15 and 16 precious in the sight of the lord is the death of his saints O lord i am your servant i am your servant the son of your maidservant you have loosed my bonds that statement i am your servant which he says twice the son of your maidservant is probably a reference to Exodus 21.4, where the life of a child is devoted entirely to the service of his master. If you're born into your master's household, your father may choose to go free when he's paid off his debt or at a certain point. But if you've been born to a servant, your master still owns you. You belong to him. Your entire life is devoted to his servant. And what's interesting here, because I know slavery has a dark view in American slavery, is this twisted thing. And it is a twisted thing. But here, the reference, the point that he's making when he says, Oh, Lord, literally in the Hebrew, it's please, Lord. Please, Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. He's pleading with the Lord for the opportunity to serve the Lord for the rest of his life. And what we see in that is a real heart of thanksgiving. You've saved me. You've delivered me. My life belongs entirely to you. You've redeemed me. You've sanctified me. You've made me whole. Lord, I've got nothing to give you. Please, please, please. Let me 
be your servant in your household for the rest of my life. Brothers and sisters, he's saying this publicly. And at the end of the psalm, when he moves on, it says, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people in the courts of the house of the Lord in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. He's talking about a public dedication in church, among the temple, in the pe- with all the people present to say, my life is yours for the rest of my life. And I want you all to be witnesses. Brothers and sisters, this is what worship is. This is what praise is that ends with hallelujah. It's what the Lord has done privately that comes out publicly of a declaration of who God is and what he's done. And that my life is meant as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to be a testimony that the entirety of my life is to be a testimony of thanksgiving to who God is, that he is gracious and righteous and merciful, and that my life belongs to him. And I believe the Puritans understood when they gathered together each Sunday, this is what a Sunday worship was to be. When they sang the Psalms, it's a rededication of my life to the Lord. When they prayed and gathered together for the Lord's Supper, It's a demonstration to the world. My life belongs to him. I'm a wretched sinner, but he saved me. He rescued me. This is a public testimony and a recommitment. Lord, please let me be your servant and let the entirety of my life be given to you. Now, brothers and sisters, I guess as Dr. Ellen said, I don't want your money and I don't want your wife, right? My boys were saying that to me this morning. Didn't Dr. Ellen say that? Do all pastors say that? No, just some. But if we're really thankful to the Lord, it's worth asking, what have we given him in return? And the Lord doesn't need your money and he doesn't need your time. He's loved you and his desire is that you would walk in his love. And there's only one way to walk in his love, brothers and sisters. It's to come to him and surrender your life to his son, Jesus Christ. And that's why, brothers and sisters, when we come to Matthew 11, Jesus is so burdened. He brings down judgment on all the towns because he's come to offer them the love of God and his salvation. And they said, your miracles are great. It's fun for a time. Hey, thanks for doing that, but we ain't following you. We're not gonna repent, we're good. We're going back to our fishing villages. And our Lord and Savior says that there is a judgment coming because God loved you and offered you to do a work of salvation in your life. He brought his son for you to follow and you said, No, I'm going back to my job, my friends, my food, and my family. But then Jesus comes to a word of prayer. And what does he say? I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things, the salvation of the Lord and the kingship of Jesus, from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will, What's Jesus' point? When Jesus was thankful, he was thankful for the salvation that God had given.
to people who didn't deserve it, to people who weren't smart, to people who didn't have it together. He gave thanks to the Lord for the greatness and the graciousness of God's salvation. And from that, what is the response that he required and that he called of his disciples in response for so great a salvation that they received? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's the same as the psalmist. He gives thanks to the Lord for his salvation. This is what our Lord is thankful for. And then the response is for those who have been saved to come to him and to share the life of Christ. Years ago, one of my mentors, who I was blessed to know, he had been a pioneer of infectious disease in Canada, and he was chief of staff at a preeminent pediatric hospital. And he had spent a lot of his early years pioneering vaccines. And I noticed when I spent time with him, he was a man who was radically saved at an older age after the success of his medical career. What I noticed is he had this very expensive watch. He had this gold Piaget. And... I made a comment to him one time. I said, hey, that's a really nice watch. Enamored as I was in those days by designer things. And in Canada, that watch was just an immense fortune. And he shared with me, he said, this watch was given to me by a patient's father. In fact, it was a successful Jewish businessman. And his, wife, his, his daughter was dying of an infectious disease. Nothing would work. And so he went to this physician and he pleaded with him in desperation, do anything, whatever you can do. And all this physician had at that time was experimental medicine. They had been working on vaccines on horses. And so what he did, because all was lost in that Jewish father was desperate and pleaded and says, doesn't matter, do whatever you need to do. He went and he took what they were experimenting on and he first injected it into himself to make sure that there would be no undue side effects. And when he survived, he then injected this young lady with this experimental medication. She survived. And so the father went out and spent a fortune and gave this watch to him as a thanksgiving and a gift of thanks. His daughter was worth far more. I wondered to what extent that Jewish father was tied to the traditions of the Old Testament that said when life is given, there is a thanksgiving offering that is warranted. And I realized that this physician who now loved the Lord Jesus deeply, wore this watch not to flaunt wealth, but instead it was a testimony and a memorial to a father's love for a child and a heart of humility and gratitude and thanksgiving that we can't pay enough, but we will give what we can. And as we think about the gospel, brothers and sisters, 
we need to be mindful of a father who gave his son so that you and I could be saved and so that we too could know God's love and his salvation. Not just know it, brothers and sisters, to, to be thankful for it and to walk in a father's love by walking in his thanksgiving, by giving our lives to Christ. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for all that you have done for us. Thank you for your presence in our lives during times of affliction. It's hard to say, but thank you sometimes, Lord, for bringing us to places where we cannot help or save ourselves. Because it's typically, Lord, in those moments that we begin to see that there is one who does love perfectly, who is gracious, who is righteous, who is merciful, who is burdened for the suffering of his children and deems their lives of great cost to himself. Thank you for these things, and may we be a people whose hearts are filled with gratitude. In your name we pray, amen.